Hey, turn to Matthew chapter 20. We are going to actually finish Matthew chapter 20 this week. It has been a, a long road, right? This journey to Jerusalem. Jesus is heading for the final time out of the Galilee, and we said up to Jerusalem towards the cross. And really, of course, we'll bring to a climax this three and a half years of his earthly ministry. And it's a ministry, as we've studied through this gospel account of Matthew, it's a ministry during which we have watched him perform countless miracles, right? Demonstrating his authority. And of all the miracles that we see in Matthew, uh, it's true that Mark is actually the one that records more miracles that Jesus performed than any of the other gospel accounts. This morning, we're going to watch what would be his final display of this authority before he enters Jerusalem. It's also what would be, aside of course from his resurrection, it's gonna be his final act of mercy, his final healing miracle, if you will. And we know that the miracles of Jesus began way up in the north, right? This little village next to Nazareth, it was Cana of Galilee, and that's the place where he turned the water into wine at the wedding, you recall from John chapter two. And it ends here this morning, as we'll watch him give sight to the blind. So from the north up in Galilee, right, this really insignificant little village in the foothills there atop the Sea of Galilee, all the way to the south in Judea to what is really a very historically significant city in what were the lowlands right there near the Dead Sea. So from the north to the south, from the high country to the low country, everywhere in between Jesus did miracles. Right, signs, wonders, mighty deeds, right, displaying his deity and his compassion and his power, and then using these things to preach salvation and to preach entrance into this glorious kingdom that he would usher in. And I think what we're going to see this morning is in, in what is his final miracle of mercy. It really puts the punctuation, right? It puts the period right at the end of this incredible ministry. And I think that it has this sense of real significance for his miraculous work that he has done or desires to do in each and every one of our lives as well. So let's just pray and ask the Lord really to minister to us through his word today. Father, we thank you for today, Lord, and we thank you that we are here and that we're here together. Lord, we thank you most of all that you are here with us. We thank you that your spirit desires to teach us, and we pray, Lord, that our hearts would be open to what it is that you want to share with us this morning. And we ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So remember, Jesus and his group of followers, they're headed south down through the Jordan River Valley along the Jordan River. We saw last week they made kind of a pit stop, you remember. And he, uh, it was this important discussion, this lesson on leadership that Jesus gave, right? Humble yourself, serve the needs of others. And what we saw is that that one valuable thing, right, in all of lives to, to live like Christ, to be like Christ, to be an influence for Christ in this world by serving others, and that that, in the estimation of heaven, is what will make us great. And this morning, we're going to join Jesus in his entourage. We're going to pick up in verse 
29, it says, Now as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him. So one of the world's oldest occupied cities, Jericho, was this beautiful desert oasis. It was located about 15 very mountainous miles downhill from Jerusalem. And it was known as the City of Palms. It would be about a six-hour walk straight up to get to Jerusalem. It was the last major city along Jesus' route. Historians tell us at this time in history that Jericho was the most trafficked intersection in the world. And that was due to the fact that all commerce, travel, all the movement of troops between Europe to the north and then Africa to the south would pass through Jericho. So you take that and then you add to it the fact that at this time of the annual Passover approaching, an estimated extra three million people would have been ascending up to Jerusalem, many of them through Jericho, to observe this year's Passover feast. So it's in this place, right, we see that Jesus' reputation has preceded him. There are multitudes here hoping to catch a glimpse of this man who many believed at this point was going to be or was the Messiah. Now, perhaps they would witness a miracle. Perhaps they would receive some kind of a blessing. Perhaps they would hear some sort of a word of wisdom. Perhaps they would see some drama, right? There would be some sparks that were going to fly between Jesus and those religious leaders who were opposing him. And so it's this combination we have of these people who were following Jesus because they knew who he was, and then just this mass of humanity that was flowing from, you know, down to the south to attend, uh, you know, ascend, I should say, to Jerusalem, it would have been literally the parade that never ended. And so we have all of the, the townspeople lining the streets. And so in verse 30, we read, and behold, two blind men sitting by the road. Now, if you were a blind beggar, this would have been the place to be, right? Location, location, location. If you want to be a successful beggar, you have to go where the crowds are, right? Where the, a big city. And interestingly, Jericho especially apparently had a large population of blind people. There was this balsam bush that grew only there in that area, and it supplied some sort of juice that they used as medicine that they believed was valuable in treating blindness. Now, apparently, it wasn't valuable enough that these two men were still blind, right? So Matthew, in our account here, notes that there were two of these men. Mark mentions that there's only one, likely the more outspoken, and Mark actually gives us his name, Bartimaeus. Now, many have suggested that this man, Bartimaeus, eventually became a well-known believer within the first century church, right? And that by the time Mark wrote this gospel account, naming him was a way that they could tell the conversion story of this familiar fellow believer, Bartimaeus. And I actually think that it's not at all by accident that the Holy Spirit included his name for us in Mark's account because Bartimaeus means son of Timaeus, which literally means son of the unclean one. And perhaps he was blind due to, you know, there was lots of vitamin deficiency in those days, but it's more likely that, that his blindness was a result of heredity. 
right? That, that it's very possible that Bartimaeus was named that because his mother or his father had passed on a disease that had produced this blindness in their son. And the possibility of this put him at the very bottom of all of Jewish society. Because in Jewish theology of the day, as a blind person, you were under divine judgment. You were blind because God was punishing you or because he was punishing your parents. Remember back in John chapter 9, the man who was born blind and the disciples, remember that they asked Jesus, they said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So here are these men who would be alienated and ostracized, men who were viewed to be under this divine curse, right? Begging, right? So below the peasants, below those who were unclean, below the degraded sinners, you would have these guys, the cursed. And in this sense, I believe that they are comprehensively representative of us. Right? Each and every one of us outside of Jesus. Right? Because they were blind. Every lost sinner is blind. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says that even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God, should shine on them. Not only were these guys blind, but they were poor beggars. And in a very real sense, every lost sinner is poverty-stricken. They're apart from Christ. We think about Luke chapter 7 and the example that Jesus gives us of the creditor and the two debtors. It says that when they had nothing with which to repay, that he freely forgave them both. So as much as we hate to admit it, as much as we may hate to remember it, each one of us was blind to the truth of the gospel. And we, we were too broke spiritually to do anything about it, just like these two blind beggars. And so because of this, we see that they were sitting by the roadside, which is always a place for marginal people. And so many today, I think, may not sense that they have this deep spiritual need, but they think that they do feel like they're outcasts. They're marginalized. They're disenfranchised by people or by society. They're, in a sense, they're sitting there by the roadside and they're just waiting. They're waiting for something to happen and yet they feel completely powerless. Imagine these men, try to put yourself into their shoes, no doubt, they would hear the creaking of the wagon wheels as they moved past them and the, the snorting oxen. They would hear the shuffle of sandals on the rocky roads. They would hear the sounds of all the camels and the conversations. They would likely be covered by dust that was kicked up as people passed by, everyone else moving while they are sitting there still. And I suspect that there may be some of us here this morning who can kind of identify with that. You know, maybe you feel like everything around you, things are happening, right? People are moving, and yet you, we may feel like we're just sitting. We're just wondering. We're just begging. We're just hoping that something will come along. And then in the commotion, we hear that Jesus of Nazareth is coming. 
right, that knew that controversial rabbi is about to pass by. The one who we've heard has healed so many and he's provided hope to the hurting. And so not surprisingly, what we read in the rest of that verse 30, it says that when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out saying, have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. So over the noise of the crowd, think about the loudest parade at Disneyland, right? This is louder than that. And over the noise of the crowd, over the confusion of all this passing mob, over the myriad of conversations and the commotion, these men try to be heard. And, and imagine, it's like they're shouting out boldly into the darkness and they start crying out to Jesus and they ask for mercy. And as they do it, notice that they boldly declare that he is Messiah. Which I love because what it tells us is that these two men without any eyesight had remarkable insight. They believed him to be in very truth, this promised son of David who would give sight to the blind and perform all of the other marvelous works. Isaiah chapter 42, it says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes and to bring out prisoners from the prison. Right. The, the heir of David's throne, right? according to 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Messiah would be the one to receive the kingdom that had been promised to the son of David. Right, But he would be David's greater son. He would be the king that would bring the fulfillment of not only the promises that were promised to David, but also the ones that were originally promised to Abraham. So son of David was the most common Jewish title for the Messiah. Son of David. These guys may have been physically blind, but they were anything but spiritually blind because they recognized Jesus for who he truly was, despite the religious leaders who all were opposing him. And I think it's significant here. Look at what they were crying out to him for. They cried out to him as beggars for mercy and not for money. Now, that seems stupid, and yet understand that for a beggar, their very existence depended on the generosity of all of the people who would pass by. And in that culture, people believed that they earned blessing by helping beggars. And especially all of these pilgrims on their way to the holy city for the Passover, they could be expected, right, to be especially generous. And so these beggars would depend especially on these special seasons for much of their annual income. Not unlike retailers depend on a good solid Christmas to get them going for the rest of the year. So really for them to cry out to Jesus and beg for mercy, they were really risking everything that they knew. Because even though their lives as beggars were less than ideal, at least it was a life that they knew. At least it was a life that they were familiar with and comfortable in. And I think about how many people today are there who are content and are comfortable even in their blindness and even in their misery. They sense that something's missing, but at the same time, they're bound up by fear of the unknown, right? Fear that healing would somehow bring about change for us or maybe it would even demand something of us. So in a lot of ways, 
not only for us, but for these guys, it's a scary thing to cry out to the Messiah for mercy. And yet these two men, they recognize him for who he is. They exercise all of the faith that they have, crying out to him in desperation. It's interesting, the Greek word that's used there for cried out is a word that specifically refers to the cries of a woman during childbirth. Those are some cries, right? <laughs> so not surprisingly, what do we read in verse 31? It says, then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet. But they cried out all the more, saying, have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. So here the crowd tries to silence these guys. They say, hey, stop all the shrieking and all this crying out for mercy. We can't hear the sermon, right? Because... I, here's the irony. It was customary in the time of Jesus that a rabbi would be teaching as he was walking along the road. And no doubt, those who were following after Jesus, all the people who had gathered there around Jesus, they couldn't hear Jesus because these two guys were weeping and wailing for mercy. And after all, what possible claim could these two blind beggars possibly have on the great teacher, as though Jesus could be troubled right, by these poor wretches such as they were because they were completely undeserving of anything. And that's the whole point, isn't it? They knew it, and that's why they cried out for mercy. Here are two men who know what they truly need, and it's mercy. And of course, I think that this cry would be typical of anybody who's in affliction. I think it's certainly, it's a true and it's a pure cry that comes from the hearts of these men because they know they are deserving of nothing. These two men understood the theology of their people. They understood, they considered themselves cursed by God because they were blind. They knew that they need mercy. They know that they're sinners because their blindness had forced them to face up to that fact. And isn't it ironic, I think we could say in a strange sense, that their blindness was a blessing because it helped them to see their own sin. And it helped them to recognize their need. And I think how often is that the case in our own lives as well. I think this is the way we really need to understand these men. They understand their own condition. They understand their, their wretchedness. They are outcasts and sinners. And that's a fact that has been hammered down on them day after day after day. They feel the disdain and the despising of the people who pass by. So their blindness was actually a help to them. Because what their blindness did is it forced them to look through not their physical eyes, but it forced them to look through eyes of faith. They couldn't see Jesus. They couldn't see this dusty king, the one who wasn't clothed in royal robes, the one who didn't carry a royal scepter. They couldn't see him, you know, who wasn't ascending a royal throne. They couldn't see Jesus the way that everybody thought Jesus should have been, and yet they knew who he truly was. Because they believed by faith. They believed everything they had heard about Jesus. And they had heard a lot, right? They had heard enough to believe that he could help them. And so I think it's interesting that their hearts had surely seen Jesus. 
before their eyes ever possibly could have seen Jesus. And, and I know it's hard to hear, but so often we can be blind to the blessings of the difficulties that are in our lives, and yet those are the very things that force us to look with eyes of faith. Right? They force us to look with our hearts, and they force us to really see Jesus for who he is. So whatever, whatever the struggle, whether it's sickness, or whether it's a child in rebellion, or whether it's financial difficulty, or some sort of a relational loss in our lives, these things can force us to see Jesus. Oftentimes they're the only things, aren't they, that force us to see Jesus for who he truly is. They're the only things that force us to really cry out to him in the desperate way that these two men do. And look, again, tragically, all the crowd wanted to do in the face of this was to have them be quiet. And I think it's interesting, you know, historically we know that Jericho was the home of many of the priests and the Levites who served at the temple in nearby Jerusalem. So we have to suspect that many of them were probably there in the crowd that day and probably fearful of the impact that this young prophet might have on their comfortable lives, which were all deeply rooted in tradition. Some of those surely were standing here on the sidelines also trying to silence these two men. Because Lord forbid Jesus' you know, mercy and his ministry would be manifest on these guys. Lest the people see how truly available and how personal the Lord really is. I remember when Michelle and I were first saved and we were really trying to press into the kingdom. We were at, of course, a time of crisis in our lives. And we started attending church three times a week, right? Twice on Sundays and Wednesday nights. And we were at small groups and Bible studies and even a Bible college class five other nights a week. We started reading our Bibles every day. And I remember there were a number of people around us, professing believers, who asked us what was wrong with us. They were worried that we may have been caught up into some kind of a cult. They wondered what in the world this Calvary Chapel group was all about. But God was doing a new and a fresh, and he was doing a deep work in us, which transcended all of our trials. And it was a work that was way bigger than we knew, and certainly bigger than those people could understand. And so I think it's so very important in our Christian lives that we don't accept the standards of the crowd. That we don't settle for what everybody else finds acceptable. It's important that we decide the kind of relationship we want to have with God. We decide how close we want to be to him, what the things are that we want to tell him about the needs that we have in our life, and we truly reach out to him based on that. Don't let anybody keep you from doing that. You do what you need to do. Don't accept anybody else's lukewarm vibe within the church. You need something from God. You do what these guys did, which is that they took whatever faith they had and they cried out to the Lord with everything that they had. And look what happened. Verse 32, it says, So Jesus stood still and he called to them and said, What do you want me to do for you? Now, this seems so simple, but I would suggest to you that this is nothing less than supernatural. Again, think about our scene, 
right? Amidst the noise and the commotion of this Passover pilgrimage parade, these thousands who are pressing up to Jerusalem, this great multitude that we read about in verse one who were following after Jesus and who were no doubt crowding around him, Jesus hears the cries of these two men on the side of the road and he stops in his tracks. And isn't that what we've seen him do over and over again? Because the ear of Jesus is attuned to hear the cries of the marginal people. Think about the woman with the issue of blood. Think about the demoniac, all of the sick. Think about the Syrophoenician woman. Think about the boy who had the unclean spirit. Think about the little children, right? And now these blind men who are sitting there languishing beside the road. We've talked about the fact that there was nothing that could have stopped Jesus on his journey to Jerusalem, Jesus on his road to the cross, and yet he stood still. And he stood still to answer this persistent plea for mercy. And I think if we've seen anything through our studying and our reading of the Gospels, we see the compassion of God towards people who are hurting demonstrated in Jesus Christ compassionate at every turn. And so he stops and he says, call them here, right? Call them here, don't silence them. Call them here and bring them to me. In Luke chapter 18, it actually says that he commanded that they be brought to him. He commanded it. And I think just as an aside, I think that's an important reminder for us that we have a part to play in bringing people to Jesus, especially those who can't bring themselves. Jesus certainly could have shouted over to the blind men and said, hey, you guys come over here to me. But instead, he enlists the help of those around them to bring them to him. And then watch what he does. He starts to draw their faith out of them. And notice he does it by asking them this wonderful and this simple question that, by the way, God has never stopped asking. What does he ask? What do you want me to do for you? Of course, Jesus knew, right? We know that Jesus knew what they needed. He knew they were blind. He asks them this question with that full knowledge. He knew both what they wanted, he knew what they needed, and yet God still wants us to tell him our needs because in doing that, it's this constant expression of our trust and our reliance upon him. Sometimes the Bible says that we go without what we need when God would want to give us something simply because what? We won't answer this question. God asks, what do you want me to do for you? In James chapter 4, he says simply that you do not have because what? You do not ask. And notice too, notice what Jesus is doing here. He's modeling for the disciples this lesson on servant leadership that he had just taught to the disciples during their pit stop. Remember, we looked at it last week. So here we have the king of heaven. Right? God incarnate becoming the true servant, right? becoming the true slave to a sinner, to two sinners, two lowly, debased outcasts. And so Jesus is demonstrating, he's saying, look, you want to be great in the kingdom? Be a servant. 
You want to be the first in the kingdom? Make yourself a slave just as you see me doing. Be that person like Jesus who lives to make life better for the people around you. Ask them that question. So for us this morning, what is it that you would answer to Jesus as he's asking you that same thing? What do you want me to do for you? Maybe it's healing. Maybe it's physical healing. Maybe it's emotional healing. Maybe it's restoration of a relationship. Maybe it's provision or direction. Maybe it's simply that you need him to draw you unto himself. Maybe your request is that of the father who cried out in Mark 9, the best prayer, I think, in the Bible. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Whatever it is, the Lord Jesus wants us to ask it of him because it exercises that imperfect developing faith that we all have when we entrust him with our needs. But let me encourage you as you do this that what the Lord wants to do so often is way beyond what we even know to ask. Because James also cautions us, just after he says, you do not have because you do not ask, he goes on to say in the very next verse, that you ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. He says, you ask for stupid stuff. God wants to do more. So we ask for the things that we think that we need or that we they think that we want, but the Lord is looking to do something deeper. The Lord is always looking to do something beyond what we could ask and beyond what we could think. Because look what happens next with these two men. They had stopped him. Their cry for mercy. He asks them what they want him to do for them. And it says in verse 33 that they said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. And I love this because... In their request, I think that they were asking for what they thought was their greatest need physically, but they were also asking for what Jesus knew was their greatest need spiritually. Right? In Ephesians chapter 8, Paul prays that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, you may know it is the hope of his calling and are the riches of his glory of the inheritance in the saints. And then in Acts chapter 26, we have Paul recounting the words that Jesus spoke to him at his conversion, that he was going to use Paul to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So these men were asking for their sight, but Jesus was about to give them that and so much more. Look at verse 34. It says, So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. So as the servant to even the beggars, Jesus touched them and he healed them. It isn't so true that so often we see Jesus healed with a touch. And so often isn't it true that he touched, he reached out and he touches those who were untouchable, doesn't he? Think about Matthew chapter 8, 
Jesus, uh, this, that account of Jesus being approached by a leper who begged him for healing. Now, of course, leprosy, right, this most dreaded disease, this condition that rendered the body just this mass of ulcers and decay. And there were certain types of leprosy that would numb the nerve endings, right, and that would lead to the loss of fingers and toes or maybe even a whole foot or a whole hand. And leprosy is often described as death by inches. And the social consequences of leprosy were just as severe as the physical consequences. Because considered contagious, lepers were quarantined, right? They were banished to these colonies. So in the scriptures, a leper is symbolic of that ultimate outcast. They're infected by a condition they didn't seek. They're rejected by everyone that they did know. They're avoided by everyone that they don't know. They're condemned to this future that they can't bear. And yet, in Matthew chapter 8, it says, Behold, a leopard came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing. Be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And you think about what just took place there in that instant, and certainly the infection was banished by a word from Jesus, and yet the man's loneliness, I think, was treated by that touch from Jesus. And the fact of the matter is, he is still doing the same thing today. Jesus is touching the untouchable of the world and he's changing their lives. We think of entire classes, right? Castes of people in India, for example, the Dalits, right? The untouchables. It's this class who are not just considered to be lower classed, but technically they are outcast. They are untouchable. They are bound at the very bottom of India's Hindu society for centuries. And the population of Dalits is estimated at more than 300 million. And they have suffered abuse from society for as long as anyone can remember. They're labeled untouchable at birth, and so they can't even eat or drink the same water as those of the majority Hindu religion that would identify as belonging to higher castes. And the teaching is they actually believe the Dalits are actually told that the gods are angry with them. And so they have to live their life in suffering and in misery. And one author wrote that the huge lie in India is don't help the poor because they are being punished by the gods. And yet what's happening? is that the gospel of Jesus, right, and his love and his compassion for the untouched and the untouchable, it's penetrating the darkness of this satanically inspired system. And so that the, the latest figures show that 70% of all Indian Christians are coming out of this Dalit or this untouchable class because they're the ones who recognize their need. They're the ones who are being touched by Jesus. They're the ones who are abandoning their false gods who are angry with them, and they're embracing this God who embraced them, just like these two blind beggars. 
I think we learned something significant too from Mark's account. Mark says specifically, speaking of Bartimaeus, that Jesus touched him and then Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And that wording made you well, there's a very specific Greek word that's used and it's the same word, it's sozo, from which we get our word saved. So what Jesus is saying is your faith has saved you. And so what we see over and over throughout his ministry, of course, Jesus has the power to heal disease, but far more importantly, he has the power and the authority to save sinners. If you are here this morning and you are feeling untouchable, right? If you are feeling or if you've been told that for some reason God is angry at you like an outcast, I can tell you on the authority of the scripture that Jesus wants to touch you and he wants to restore you and he wants to make you whole and he wants to make you accepted and he wants to know, he wants you to know how loved you truly are and he wants to have you follow after him. Because notice here what happens, these men have their eyes now newly opened and now they use this new quality, right, this new condition in their lives and they use it to start to follow after Jesus to become obedient followers and live these lives of, of worship. And they did it completely with no reservation. Again, there's one more neat note that Mark includes. It says that when Jesus called blind Bartimaeus to himself, it says that throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. Now this is important, it's important for us because in Jesus' time, beggars, especially blind ones, would sit there with their cloaks spread out in front of them to catch any of the coins that were tossed by people who were passing by. And so a beggar's cloak was critical to his livelihood, just in the same way that boats were to a fisherman like Peter, or in the same way that a booth was to a tax collector like Matthew. And in the same sense as the others abandoned boats or abandoned booths to follow Jesus, these men toss aside their cloaks and all the coins that may have been on them and they get up and they stand there before the son of David and then they follow passionately after him by faith. What a contrast, isn't it, to what we saw from the rich young ruler who refused to give up anything. And I think there's such a beautiful picture that these men paint for us of that simple faith being placed in the Lord. Here are these men that were driven to desperation by their circumstances. These men who were painfully aware of their own sin and their inability to help themselves. And they cry out for mercy and they're touched by Jesus and they abandon everything to follow after him. Does their testimony sound anything like your testimony? Because I suspect that for some of us it does. And what Luke tells us when this is all over, it says in Luke 18, 43, it says, when all the people saw it, this multitude, what does it say they did? They gave praise to God. Because what else could you do? How else could you possibly explain what had just happened? And I think that we're gonna see that this 
miracle, this final miracle of mercy is part of what is going to escalate all the events when Jesus finally arrives next Sunday at Jerusalem. Because this was so public, it was so open, it was so undeniable. I can't think of a better morning to take communion than this morning. What I want to encourage us all is that as we take some time this morning and we observe communion, you know, remembering that sacrifice he made for us on the cross, we should pause and we should really remember that the work that the Lord has done in rescuing each one of us is no less miraculous than what we've just read of these two men. And just the way it happened here, when the people saw it, they should give praise to God. Amen. And the, the difficulties and the trials that each of us are facing can be put into perspective when we remember the cross. When we remember the way that Jesus reached out to us and the way that he touched us at that time, maybe in our lives, when we felt the most untouchable. And there's an important question, I think, for each of us to ask and to ask the Spirit to help us answer is, where are you this morning? Are you waiting there by the wayside for something to happen? Are you in that place in your life where you're crying out for desperation because you realize that you have no answers? Are you in that place where Jesus is asking you that searching question, what is it that you really need him to do for you? Or are you in that place where Jesus has touched you and he's brought that healing and that others around you could be giving praise to God for it? So I will just say, if you're here this morning and you've never felt that tender touch from Jesus, right? can I just encourage you to follow after the simple example of these two men? Right? Recognize your need for the Lord's mercy. And then simply cry out to him to have mercy on you. You don't need to understand everything that the Bible teaches. You don't need to understand every, all the finer points of the gospel. You simply need to know that you're in desperate need of his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness. And you simply need to ask him for that. And the promise of the scripture is that when you do that with a pure heart, he'll do it for you. So as we take communion now, Kissy and, and Paula are going to come up and, and start to minister. The communion will be available to you at, at your, um, you know, on your own. You can come up and get it, take it back to your seat, spend some time, do some business with the Lord, ask him to search your heart. And when you're ready, you take the communion on your own. And if you need prayer for something, we're going to have some people up here uh, on your left and on your right. And they're here to pray for you. They're here to answer questions that you may have. They're here to pray and ask the Lord to save you. And then you can partake of communion with the rest of us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, Lord. And we thank you for the encouragement that it gives to us, Lord. And we thank you the way that it reveals your grace. Lord, your great love and your mercy towards us. Father, we, each one of us, Lord, whether we've been saved, Lord, or whether we need to be saved, we cry out for your mercy. 
Father, we thank you that you continue to want to be active in our lives, Lord, asking us, what is it that we want you to do for us, Lord? And we confess that we don't even know how to answer that question, Lord, and yet we trust, Lord, that by your spirit, Lord, you'll search our hearts, Lord. Help us, Father, with our unbelief. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's worship and let's partake of communion together.